In the early 80s, Susan Rogers was a small-time audio technician working in Los Angeles when she landed a job with a big-time rock star. I was an audio technician. I didn't do anything artistically with records. But it turned out that when Prince was embarking on Purple Rain, he was looking for a technician, someone to keep his home studio running. And also, as it turned out, fortunately for me, use the equipment and assist him in his recordings. It was a stroke of luck. Susan loved Prince. And it turned out they also had a similar taste in music. They listened to the same funk and soul records growing up. And working with him, Susan learned not just to record music better, but to think about what it meant to have a signature sound. So he was able to train me and teach me his ear, what he liked music to sound like. Over the next 22 years, Susan worked with tons of stars. David Byrne from The Talking Heads, the trip-hop artist Tricky. And then in the early 2000s, she switched careers entirely. She went for a PhD in neuroscience to understand how music affects the brain. And she recently wrote a book called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Individual pieces of music are chosen to serve an immediate function. Mm -hmm. So our little brains are up there minding their own business. And throughout the day, they're going to say to themselves, you know what would be good right now? I would like to hear some music. When you're going to go to your playlist, you're going to choose something. That's a brain saying there's a particular kind of treat I'm in the mood for right now. Susan's built a theory around this. She says there are seven different criteria that our brains use to make sense of the music that we hear. There's melody and lyrics and rhythm. And then there's some that I found really surprising. So today, Susan and I chat through them and we listen to some music together. Then I speak with our literary editors, Fred Studeman and Laura Battle, about their favorite books of the year. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Susan, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Lila, for asking me to be here on your podcast. So you wrote a book called This Is What It Sounds Like. And um, I'll tell you that I actually walked into a bookstore in Manhattan. I was killing some time. And I thought, I have too many books. I can't buy a book. (laughs) And I walked out carrying your book because I started reading it and I just got hooked. Um, You promised me that you would help me understand like why cognitively we like the music we like and why we may not like music that others think we should like. Mm. And um, it's just something I never really realized I always wanted to know. Why did you write the book? I uh, loved the conversations that we would have in the recording studio. I was a record maker for 22 years and uh, I'm also a non-musician. So it was especially gratifying to me to start talking about music from a place that I recognized, namely the position of being a music listener. So when musicians Mm -hmm. are talking about how to play or write or sing, I can't hold up my end of the conversation. But when we're talking about the music that we love, that's when the musicians all revert back to where they started, music lovers, Mm -hmm. listeners. So I, I wanted readers of this book to experience that and to recognize you don't have to be a trained musician or a professional musician to be able to say something about how music works. Yeah, yeah. Susan, I'm in the business of questions, and there's this one question that I really hate, Mm -hmm. and I sort of live in fear of, and that's the question, what kind of music do you like? Mm -hmm. 
It like feels like a test to me. And I feel like part of the pressure is that like culturally there's a wrong answer. Like it feels more like it's an ideology question than it is about our wiring. Like if I like country music, and I do like some country music, will I be judged accordingly? <laughs> and I guess sort of I'm, I'm wondering from you what your thoughts are on that. Like what are the things that come together to form our taste in music? It must be some mix of identity and cognitive wiring, right? Lila, my compliments to you as a journalist. This is the <laughs> ideal question to ask oh, about this topic. Um, <laughs> all of us, I believe, have experienced that. Uh, when we talked mm -hmm. a few moments ago, I was saying in the recording studio, I didn't feel quite on the same level with the trained musicians who were actually players and writers. What we need to be doing is considering that music is functional. So in the book, mm -hmm. I'm talking about uh, at least seven different dimensions of recorded music that can independently, different regions of the brain, give us a neural treat, a reward. Mm -hmm. You can think of it like a constellation of seven stars. If a given record happens to plop down somewhere in the middle of your constellation, of seven stars, it might be too far from any one of your stars to actually excite you or cause you to feel any gravitational pull. But if a record just so happens to land right next to that sweet spot on your dimension for rhythm or your dimension for timbre or your dimension for style, if it's close enough to any one of these seven dimensions, you're going to feel an attraction to it. Here's the premise of Susan's book. There are these seven ways that our brains process music. There's melody, lyrics, Amazing grace. and rhythm. There's timbre, which is the quality of the sound. Timbre is sound itself. So you can take a song, a jazz standard like Autumn Leaves, and whether you play it on saxophone or guitar, it's got the exact same melody. You might have the exact same tempo and the same rhythm, but what is different is one version's on a piano, another version's on a saxophone. And then there are three aesthetic dimensions, novelty, authenticity, and realism. Susan says these actually apply to all kinds of art, movies, books, painting. Novelty is, do you like stuff that feels new or familiar? Authenticity is, do you believe the songwriter when they say they have a broken heart? And does that even matter to you? And realism is, can you envision the song being performed? If we listen to electronic music, it's often made by musical instruments that exist entirely in the box meaning yeah. in the laptop, virtual musical instruments. If I'm trying to picture what happened in the studio when this record was made, I'm not picturing individual musicians. These are all electronic sources. Some of us have a preference for realistic mm -hmm. records. Some of us have a preference for the more abstract kind. So our brain naturally has different preferences in these seven categories. Mine is wired to enjoy a different type of melody or timbre or rhythm than yours. And actually, it goes even deeper than that, beyond just the brain. 
There's a certain way our bodies like to move. If you go to a rock concert, you see people doing that up and down pogo stick kind of motion. Me personally, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't work. But if you go to a, a soul or an R&B kind of concert, you're going to see more front to back movement. Latin music is going to generate a more side to side. Our yeah. bodies have ways in which movement feels just right to us. Same thing with sounds and styles. Okay, so that's the theory. Seven criteria, brain wiring, inputs. But to really understand what Susan is talking about, I asked if she wouldn't mind listening to some music with me to explain what might be going through our brains when we hear a song. So the first song that I've chosen (laughs) is Despacito by Luis Fonsi featuring Daddy Yankee. And uh, I've chosen it because it has been played on YouTube nearly 8 billion times. It's not my favorite reggaeton song, but it is addictive and it's the one that's like captured the hearts and minds of, I don't know, a generation. So it's got a lot of things going for it. So first off, there's that that reggaeton rhythm, which is well established. Humans love this. Then that mm-hmm. vocal comes in. That vocal is a strong one. Then, in the arrangement of this record, it's transitioning between sections and giving you a different kind of sonic picture in different sections of the record, and that helps prevent it from being boring. It's got a strong hook, and uh, it did really set the gold standard for, for reggaeton. Susan, so there are like millions of people who listen to this and don't know any of the lyrics. So what is that? Hmm. That happens because, as I was saying earlier, our brains independently process these elements of a record. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so if you don't speak Spanish, the lyrics aren't going to work out for you. That's okay. <laughs> uh, you're the brain can just ignore that that part yeah. and attend to just the rhythm of the vocal performance or attend to just the melody in the in the song or in the vocal and in other aspects of it if you've got a friend mm-hmm. who says to you oh i never listen to the words believe them because there are many <laughs> listeners who just they just turn off that side of the processing when they're playing their favorite records mhm okay the second song is um, Etta James, Sunday Kind of Love, foundational R&B soul. I'll pull it up. I love this song. I want a Sunday kind of love. A love to last past Saturday night. And I oh. <laughs> So in the recording studio, you might point out how much music a performer is delivering with their voice or on an instrument. In this case, Evetta James, this could be an a cappella record. Her voice is delivering so much music. The melody, the sound, the timbre. There's so much of what music is in her vocal performance alone. Notice that Etta sings the verse, and then when the strings come in, 
those strings are almost swooning. It's like they're saying, mm-hmm. oh, Etta, tell it slow. Those strings <laughs> are syrupy and romantic mm-hmm. and dripping with feeling. Yeah, and the lyrics are like so simple, but you know exactly what she's mm. talking about. It's good that they're simple too, <laughs> in a way, so that's they true. don't detract from her that's, voice. That's true. Amazing. Okay, the last song um, is LCD Sound System, Dance Yourself Clean. I would say, I don't know, electric dance punk. It's kind of electro dance punk. It's kind of hard to define. Off-kilter electro pop, someone said. Um, Anyway, I chose this one because it's much more abstract. Okay, I'm going to fast forward it a little bit. So I'm curious what you, what this one, I mean, I know this is, but this one I sort of chose because it sort of, it builds in an interesting way. Like it brings you on this ride where you start one place and it's very simple. And then by the end, you're like, there's this sweet release, like you Mm. kind of descend into somewhere, (laughs) you know, dancing or chaos or whatever. Isn't that interesting? Um, People Mm. who love abstract records like this one, and by abstract, I mean, they're made pretty much in the box. Uh, You're not picturing a drummer in the studio. That can, that kind of abstraction can free the brain from the quote, unquote, dominance of reality. This is what neuroscientists Mm -hmm. say about abstract visual art. So when we see a painting of realistic art, uh, a mountain and trees or river or something like that, you can say, oh yeah, I recognize what those objects are. I get it. But if you see like a Jackson Pollock action painting with splashes of color, it doesn't mean anything. It's not depicting Mm -hmm. anything. And what that does is it allows your brain to make up your own interpretation as to what Mm -hmm. this music is representing. Susan, you know, we've talked a lot about the songs that we like. Um, But what about what's happening in our brains when it comes to songs that we hate? So we know that when we like music, circuits in the brain activate something called the default network. The default network is an interconnected network of brain nuclei that are concerned with our sense of self, our Mm self-identity. So when we're listening to music that we love, we start daydreaming, Mm -hmm. we start fantasizing. That's the function of music is to get us into our own heads. And this is why the music that we love reflects our identity. But when we hear music that we hate, there's a wee little (laughs) nucleus called the precunius. It's kind of like a little gatekeeper. And when you hear music that you hate, it turns out that that precunius cuts itself off from the default Mm. network as if it's saying, Mm -hmm. no, do not want, not for me. So what we're kind of doing when we hear music we dislike is we're saying, this is not part of me. This does Mm -hmm. not represent my self-identity. It's so interesting that your brain just cuts it off. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking <laughs> really of a, a record I yeah. can't stand, and I hope your listeners won't judge me harshly, but uh, <laughs> Inya's Sail Away, Sail Away, Sail Away. <laughs> 
I feel like I just want to curl up into myself when I hear that. Right, right, right. Um, My very last question, Susan, and thank you so much, is just why do you think we should care about this? You know, does it help us understand ourselves better? Does it help us understand each other better? Does it make us less judgmental? For you, what's the why? Oh, I think all of that is true. There's so much pressure on people to fit in and to demonstrate their belongingness and to identify with others in some way. Um, I think we need more emphasis on understanding ourselves as a unique work of art and appreciating that what's interesting about us is that there's no one else like us. And and mm. and I, I help I, I hope that the book helps uh, listeners have uh, a language and a vocabulary and a way of talking about the music they love that helps them give voice to their inner musicality. And I think all of us who love music are musical as listeners. Susan, um, I will be thinking about this conversation for a very long time. Um, Thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you very much. You guys do a great job. I really appreciate it. I've put a link to Susan's book and the accompanying Spotify playlist in the show notes. It's that time of the year again. The time when you have to figure out what gifts to get your relatives. And the FT is about to put out its annual Books of the Year special. So different lists will be dropping across the site this week. And there's something for everyone. There's business books, poetry, economics, pop music, food and drink, audiobooks. But it's a lot of lists. And here on the podcast, we lucked out. We got literary editors Fred Studeman and Laura Battle, who are the brains behind the special, to join me today. And they're going to tighten it down to their personal favorites. There's a literary riddle, a story of friendship between two French schoolgirls, and a book about animal perception, to name a few. Okay, so Fred and Laura, welcome to the show. I think we should just get into it. I would love to hear some of your favorite books, but I'll start by asking the question on everybody's mind, which is, when my dad <laughs> texts me from the bookstore and says, what is the FT recommending these days? What should I tell him? Well, if you're very nice to her, Laura will give you first insight on her <laughs> much cherished list of best books. Amazing. Well, Fred, Fred was actually looking for a book to take to a dinner party the other day and, and looking around other people's desks to see if he could pinch one. <laughs> and I think the book he, he pinched was Trust by Hernan Diaz, which mm-hmm. uh, we, I think we both, both of us read and really enjoyed and seems to be one of those uh, slightly buzzy ones around the FT, perhaps because uh, the subject matter is kind of about finance and uh, markets to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. And it's set in um, 1920s New York. And it it tells the story of a fantastically rich Wall Street tycoon, but through four kind of competing manuscripts. Mm-hmm. So the same story, but through four different points of view. Oh, and it's a really fun uh, literary riddle, basically, about about wealth and power and and the idea of legacy as well. Well, I'll just jump in and say one of my favourites was a book called Iron Curtain that came uh-huh. out earlier this year yes. by a writer, Vesna Goldsworthy. 
And she came originally from Serbia, and this evidently draws a lot on her own, well, I assume, uh, her, her own personal history. And it's a, it's, a, it's a romance between two individuals, one behind the Iron Curtain, one uh, from uh, the, the UK, and it challenges a lot of sort of preconceived wisdoms about freedom and trust and honesty in mm. respective societies. Um, and, and I just think, you know, there's been a bit of a thing around that. It's like 30 years ago, everyone was reading Kundera, mm-hmm. you know, just and it was all in the run-up to when the Berlin Wall came down. And now in the wake of Ukraine, you just sort of feel this sort of that type of Middle Europa or Balkan spread is sort of coming back a bit. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, another another kind of quieter choice would be uh, Yi Yun Lee's latest novel called The Book of Goose. Mm. Um which has gone slightly under the radar, although she's a wonderful writer, a wonderful novelist. Um, and it's inspired by the, the real-life story that's not all that well-known. I, I tried to look it up on the internet, and there's a tiny amount of information. Mm-hmm. Um, about a 1950s French schoolgirl who comes from a very poor rural background. Um, and she's found sudden fame in about 57 as a debut novelist and was then uh, later revealed to be uh, a fake and, and illiterate, completely illiterate. Mm. Uh, oh, wow. And Lee's novel wow. takes this idea to to explore the friendship between two fictional French schoolgirls. Fred, what about you? What's another book that you really loved? There was a bunch of short stories that Laura's already busted me for looting books from the office anyway. So <laughs> there's another thing I sort of swept probably off her desk, actually. Yeah. Um, it's a s- <laughs> series of short stories by a guy called Ferdinand von Schirach who's got an interesting personal backstory. Um, but don't need to go into that too much, in that he's sort of the descendant of one of the leading uh, figures in the Third Reich, but he's nothing like that. He's been um, an, a, a successful lawyer and is now a successful writer. And it's a collection of short stories called Punishment, a lot of which draw on, uh, that are set in and around the legal world, but also develop, you know, look at a lot of, the quirks that you find there, but also the unresolved, um, hmm. you know, the justice never quite being seen to be done and so on. And what did you learn about the minds of of lawyers? Well, I think it's that, that it is that bit that it's never quite, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the tales are about something terrible has happened and someone is then trying to sort of write it. And that where you get in the end is often quite a sort of necessarily messy um compromise of sorts mm-hmm. or that um yeah i mean it's it is raising lots of questions very german in that sense about whether um you know has justice ever really been done in this case mm. laura do you have like a um, hidden gem kind of a book is there a book that maybe didn't get a ton of press but should have yeah well there's a book that's not even published in europe or uh north america as far as i can tell. Um, it's a debut memoir called uh, Grand, um, Becoming My Mother's Daughter by Noelle McCarthy, who's a, a journalist and broadcaster based in New Zealand. Um, but it's about her family life in 1970s and 80s Ireland and about her mm. mother's um, struggle with alcoholism. Um, and a friend just got back from New Zealand, pressed it into my hands this summer. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure I can cope with another tale of misery (laughs) and another alcoholic mother. But I'm so glad I read it. It's it's a very angry book, but it's also Mm. a really vivacious account of um, 
frayed family relationships across decades and around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and also about the author's, you know, attempt to escape, as it were, to turn of the millennial, millennial Auckland um, and her life, you know, early life in journalism. Uh, so that was a real hidden gem. Um, and I'd never have come across it uh, unless this friend had, had told me about it. That's awesome. You know, Laura, it makes me wonder, like, how do you both choose books? You know, I know you have to do it for your job, (laughs) but outside of that, do you choose them based on like places you want to go or worlds you kind of want to enter or places you already know something about? Or do you ever choose them based on not knowing anything about something? Like, I guess my big question is really, how do we stay open to exploring new types of fiction? Yes, yeah, so I, I it, it's uh, it's a mixture. I'm, I try to be as open minded, particularly thinking about work and what is coming out in the autumn, as open minded as as possible. Mm-hmm. But then, like last week, I was off sick and um, just picked up a a book by this obscure publisher based in the UK called Slightly Foxed, which somebody <laughs> given me for Christmas, and it's a quarterly magazine but also a, a publisher that finds kind of semi-forgotten works of of biography. And I ended up reading Graham Greene's memoirs about his teenage years in 1920s England. Mm. Um, for those who don't know Graham Greene, he was um, one of the most prominent novelists of his generation. He wrote The End of the Fair and uh, Brighton Rock. Um, and he struggled with mental illness throughout his life. And this book kind of talks about his early mental illness and how he became addicted to playing Russian roulette. It's amazing. <laughs> so that was just a complete kind of diversion, uh, yeah. not really useful for work, although I'm mentioning it now, uh, but, <laughs> but perfect for kind of lying in bed, not feeling very well. Mm-hmm. Thank you both so much. My last question is just, what did I miss? Like, is there anything else that you want to recommend to listeners? Um, things we should know about, things we should buy for Christmas or at the holidays? Can I throw in one romp for the, uh, just for the pot? Please. Um, and it's a book called Magnificent Rebels. And it is a, it's a book by Andrea Wolf, who's a writer mm-hmm. who wrote a very uh, much celebrated biography of um, the explorer, polymath, whatever, Ale- um, Alexander Humboldt. And this is a curious milieu So it's a sort of group biography, if you like, of a bunch of philosophers, writers, painters, poets, scientists who gathered in a tiny town in central Germany called Jena, which uh, for a brief period, they were known as the Jena set around 1800. There was probably the sort of, you know, the place to be. Uh, And in a very short period of time, produced some incredible works of philosophy and writing but they also really um, established the sort of primacy of the ego. And that's why this book is so relevant for today and that I think we're still living in that sort of very self-centered, um, self-aware mm-hmm. state, a sort of post-religious state where it's all about um, who am I, what do I want, where am I going? Cool. Okay, great. Um, and then, Laura, what about you? I mean, one book that we didn't touch on or one book you'd recommend as a gift for the holidays? Or- yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, a nonfiction um, book called um, An Immense World by Ed Yong. Um, and he's um, a science reporter for The Atlantic. Um, and this is all about 
animal perception. And <laughs> I think it would be a great present for people because uh, we're used to a lot of books about the natural world being fairly depressing. Um, mm. Uh, at the moment. And this touches on a lot of serious aspects of it, but it's so uh, joyful and engaging and okay. really shows how unbelievably restrictive um, humans' five senses are um, when there are crickets that exist with ears on their knees and catfish <laughs> with taste buds all over their body. Um, it's really eye-opening, mind-bending book. Oh, fun. Okay, cool. Wow. I'm in. Um <laughs> Lauren Fred, this was so fun. Uh, I now have a long list as usual. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. Please come again soon. Thanks so much, Lila. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lila. It was such fun. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. We are still collecting your predictions and wishes for 2023. We've decided to give you a little more time. And basically what's going to happen is this. We'll be doing an end of the year call-in show featuring your messages. So Matt Vela, the magazine editor, and I will play your ideas. We'll chat through them. We'll throw in some of our own. So what we want to know from you is what do you want to happen or think will happen culturally in 2023? Will something replace Twitter? Is 2023 Rihanna's year? One listener predicted the return of speed dating. Someone thinks we'll all start mending our own clothes. Someone wants old school reality TV back like real world season one style. You can leave us a voice note using the link in the show notes and have fun with it. If you want to keep in touch in other ways or prefer to email us, you can reach us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. I see all those emails. The show is on Twitter at FTWeekendPod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter, but mostly Instagram, at Lila Rapp. If you like the show, please share it on your social feeds or recommend it to your friends. That goes a really long way to support us. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.